So we're spending the money, folks. We're just not doing it smart. We're not doing it in the way that would actually sustain us for the long term. Yeah. That sounds like us. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It is and it isn't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Rochester, New York on WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. And here, Desi Doyen, I thought it was going to be tough covering one president <laughs> in one hour every day uh, over the past four years. Now i got to cover the new one and the old disgraced one somehow in a single hour. Everything all at once. It's going to get easier soon, right? It better. Right? <laughs> I hope right? so. <laughs> all right, I want to get right to my guest uh, today uh, shortly uh, on the old president uh, in a moment so I have time to adequately cover what the new president did today because it represents a sea change, I think, from where we have been. And in this case... Literally sea change. Uh, I think that's quite literally the right words to use. Yes, literally sea change is a good word to use. Thank you. But first, uh, the Department of Homeland Security issued a national terrorism bulletin on Wednesday warning of the potential for lingering violence from people motivated by anti-government sentiment following President Joe Biden's election, suggesting that the January 6th riot at the Capitol may embolden extremists and set the stage for additional attacks. The department did not cite a specific threat, but pointed to, quote, a heightened threat environment across the U.S. that it believes, uh, quote, will persist for weeks. It's not uncommon for the federal government to warn local law enforcement about the prospect for violence tied to a particular date or event like July 4th. This particular bulletin, according to AP, however, was issued through the department's National Terrorism Advisory System and is notable 
because it effectively places the Biden administration into the politically charged debate over how to describe or characterize acts motivated by political ideology and suggests that it sees violence aimed at overturning the election as akin to terrorism. Well, yes, of course it is. I'm not sure why it is controversial or, or a debate at all or politically charged or otherwise. The very definition of terrorism, according to the Oxford Dictionaries, is, quote, the unlawful use of violence and intimidation in the pursuit of political aims. So, yeah, that is terrorism. The bulletin reads, in part, information suggests that some ideologically motivated violent extremists with objections to the exercise of governmental authority and the presidential transition, as well as other perceived grievances fueled by false narratives, could continue to mobilize to incite or commit violence. Sounds like terrorism to me. The alert comes after the riot at the Capitol by supporters of then-President Donald Trump, who were seeking to overturn the presidential election. Uh, that would be the pursuit of a political aim. Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson of Mississippi, who chairs the House Homeland Security Committee, said the domestic terrorism attack on our Capitol earlier this month shined a light on a threat that has been right in front of our faces for years. He said, I'm glad to see that DHS fully recognizes the threat posed by violent right wing extremists and is taking efforts to communicate that threat to the American people. I'm glad to see it, too. We've been talking about it for years as uh, our government has been pretending that because they're white, American and right wing, somehow they are not terrorists. It's good to see the government finally catching up to the broadcast. <laughs> the alert was uh, issued by the acting Homeland Security uh, uh, Direct Secretary. Biden's nominee for that uh, cabinet post, Alejandro Mayorkas, has not yet been confirmed by the Senate. So take your time, guys. No rush. Two former Homeland Security secretaries, Michael Chertoff, who served under George W. Bush, and Janet Napolitano, who served under Barack Obama, called on the Senate to confirm Mayorkas so he can get to work with the FBI and other agencies to deal with the threat of domestic uh, extremist and terrorism as soon as possible. Chertoff said in a conference call with reporters that attacks by far-right domestic extremists are not new, but that deaths attributed to them in recent years in the U.S. has exceeded those linked to Islamic jihadists. Quote, we have to be candid and face what the real risk is, he said. Well, of course it's a risk. Uh, that risk, this threat, was exacerbated by the former president of the United States himself, for which he is facing an historic second impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate. That won't begin in earnest for another two weeks, however. Uh, but uh, on Tuesday, 45 Senate Republicans attempted to toss it out entirely under the completely made up premise that a former president cannot face an impeachment trial. An expert on impeachment and constitutional law will join us momentarily with actual verifiable facts in response to that argument. 
Meanwhile, in new president news, Joe Biden continued his rollout of executive orders, many of which reversed the most egregious actions of the Trump era. Today was Climate Day. Yay! I knew you'd be happy about that. Uh, And I I do want to share the remarks from the president uh, in full a bit later as time allows. But very quickly here, just to give you a taste for, uh, for right now, for the moment, in what some are describing as the most ambitious U.S. effort to stave off the worst of climate change, President Biden signed executive orders on Wednesday to transform the nation's heavily fossil fuel powered economy into a clean burning one pausing oil and gas leasing on federal lands and targeting subsidies for those industries. The directives aim to conserve 30 percent of the country's lands and waters in the next 10 years to double the nation's offshore wind energy and move to an all-electric federal vehicle fleet, among other changes. The sweeping plan is aimed at staving off the worst of global warming caused by the burning of fossil fuels. We cannot wait any longer to address the crisis, Biden said at the White House. He said his orders will, quote, supercharge our administration's ambitious plan to confront the existential threat of climate change. As noted, I'll share more of his remarks a bit later today. But of course, the media immediately uh, did the bidding of the right wing by raising the issue of the price tag for Biden's plan to which the new president's new climate envoy Former Senator and Secretary of State John Kerry responded correctly, I would say, during a press briefing this way. The other reason for doing it now is the science tells us we have to. Two trillion dollar price tag. Two trillion dollars for COVID. Two trillion for this. It's a lot of money to a lot of Americans. It it is real money. And yes, it's a lot of money. But you know what? It costs a lot more if you don't do the things we need to do. It costs a lot more. There are countless economic analyses now that show that it is now cheaper to deal with the crisis of climate than it is to ignore it. We spent $265 billion two years ago on three three storms, Irma, Harvey, and Maria. Maria destroyed Puerto Rico. Harvey dropped more water on Houston in five days than goes over Niagara Falls in a year. And Irma had the first recorded winds at 185 miles an hour for 24 sustained hours. That last year, we had one storm, $55 billion. So we're spending the money, folks. We're just not doing it smart. We're not doing it in the way that would actually sustain us for the long term. Yes, there are a lot of uh, challenges right now, which sadly, all of them were exacerbated by the last four years. Now we have to try to make up for that. Yes, we do. Of course, the other political critique that has for years been disingenuously used by the fossil fuel industry uh, and their lackeys in Congress is that we can't afford to put so many in the industry out of work like coal miners who have been already put out of work because nobody wants to use dirty coal anymore anyway since there are cheaper, cleaner options like natural gas and, yes, now solar and wind. Which is now actually cheaper than natural gas in most places. Right. And like uh, oil rig workers. Anyway, former EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy, who has now been tapped by Biden as the first White House National Climate Advisor, explained the president's plan to deal with those issues this way, 
during Wednesday's White House briefing. It also has set up a task force that is looking at the, these coal uh, communities, uh, communities that are really reliant on their local energy and utility. And it talks about how do we revitalize those economies. And it talks about how we can put people to work using the skills they currently have where they are to start looking at those old abandoned oil and gas wells that are spewing out methane or, or all of the coal that, that is uh, mines that haven't been properly closed that are doing the same, that has great impact on climate, but also will keep an opportunity for those for those individual workers to have work in their own communities. And that amounts to millions of jobs, said the president today. Biden has set a goal of eliminating pollution from fossil fuel in the power sector by 2035 and from the U.S. economy overall by 2050, speeding what is already a market driven growth as Desi noted, of uh, solar and wind energy and lessening the country's dependence on oil and gas. But again, we will get back to Biden's full announcement a bit later as we bounce from one crisis to the next today. So let me take a quick break here and we'll be back with constitutional law expert Ron Fine, who literally wrote the book on impeachment to discuss the continuing efforts to demand accountability for our thankfully former president, just three weeks after he instigated a deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol itself. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At The Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Working on it. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As we go to air, incredibly enough, it has been only three weeks to the day since the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol by a mob of Donald Trump MAGA supporters following a rally at the White House in which the then president repeatedly lied about having won the 2020 election lied about massive voter fraud that did not exist and instructed and, yes, encouraged his supporters to parade down Pennsylvania Avenue to the U.S. Capitol and, quote, fight like hell to stop what he had been falsely characterizing for weeks as a stolen election. Those supporters then did as they were encouraged by the president of the United States to do. They broke into the Capitol in an attempted insurrection, calling for the hanging of the vice president and stopping the official counting of Electoral College votes dead in its tracks for hours, sending lawmakers fleeing into secure locations and leaving at least five people dead, including a Capitol Police officer, 
who was left dead in that murderous rampage. Yes, that was just three weeks ago. Seems like forever ago, but it was this month. Since then, more than 100 Trump supporters have been arrested and charged in the attack, with many more such cases and charges promised in the days ahead by the FBI. One week later after that attack, one week later to the day, the president of the United States was impeached in the U.S. House on a single article for incitement of insurrection for his role in the attempt to reverse a legitimate presidential election in the quickest impeachment proceeding in U.S. history, marking the first time that a president has been impeached twice during his presidency. That was just two weeks ago. One week later to the day, the new president, Joe Biden, was sworn into office as scheduled and as the American people voted, according to all available evidence. And here we are now, just one more week later to the day, after the Republican majority leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, refused to convene the Senate to hold an impeachment trial in the week before Joe Biden's inauguration. Now, with the article of impeachment against the disgraced former president delivered to the now democratically controlled U.S. Senate to begin Donald Trump's historic second impeachment trial, the first act of that trial after senators were sworn in as impartial jurists, Republicans in the U.S. Senate, some of whom are blamed themselves with helping to incite the murderous attack, called a vote on Tuesday to simply dismiss the entire affair, describing it as unconstitutional. After all, since the president was no longer in office following Mitch McConnell's refusal to convene the Senate for a trial before the end of his term, now that he's out, well, the whole thing is unconstitutional, can't happen. The resolution uh, was put forward by Kentucky Republican Rand Paul, but it was voted down 55 to 45 with all Democrats and just five Republicans voting against it. McConnell, who last week noted on the floor of the Senate that Trump, quote, provoked the attack on the U.S. Capitol, also voted in favor of dismissing the, the trial entirely as unconstitutional. Enforcing the vote, Senator Paul charged it was unconstitutional to hold an impeachment trial of a former president, asserting, quote, Private citizens don't get impeached. Impeachment is for removal from office, and the accused here has already left office, calling the trial deranged and vindictive. His remarks echoed a number of his recent tweets on the matter, like this one, and see if you can spot what is wrong with this tweet. He said, quote, If the accused is no longer president, where is the constitutional power to impeach him? I bet my next guest can figure out what's wrong with that tweet and with Paul's claims on the Senate floor that private citizens don't get impeached. Joining us now is Ron Fine, co-author with our friends Ben Clements and John Bonifaz, constitutional law experts all, of the 2018 book The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump. Ron is also legal director at freespeechforpeople.org a nonprofit, nonpartisan government accountability group challenging big money and politics, corruption at the highest levels of our government, and fighting for free and fair elections. Oh, Ron Fine, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. It is a pleasure to be back with you. 
So uh, Ron Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Rand Paul, uh, who has long touted himself, Ron, as a, uh, a champion of the U.S. Constitution, a so-called originalist, a textualist. He takes the words of the Constitution very literally as written, says that a former president, now a private citizen, cannot be impeached. That would therefore be unconstitutional. Now, I'm no constitutional law expert such as yourself, Ron, but I'm pretty sure even I can spot the flaw in that argument. Can you? Well, the obvious flaw, of course, is that Trump was impeached while he was president. Ding, ding, uh, ding, ding, then, ding, ding, yes. <laughs> and then McConnell uh, stalled the process of the Senate trial by refusing to allow it to be held until Trump was already uh, out of office. But the, the larger issue is that uh, former public officials can be impeached uh, and undergo Senate trial, even if the impeachment occurs after they've left office. And we know that because Congress has done it before and, and explicitly considered that exact question. So this isn't even a new issue. So what is there? I mean, do they even have an ostensible argument to make? After all, 45 Republicans uh, agreed with them. What, what is the basis for their claim? Or is it just a completely false basis that they're making up, that they should know better, but that they don't care? Well, first of all, I, I do want to give credit to the five Republicans who did not uh, agree with this silly argument. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and they deserve that credit. We, we'll see how they vote at the end of the trial, but at least they uh, didn't join in this foolishness. It's an argument that um, really has no basis in either the text of the Constitution or in its history. Um, the fact that it has no basis in the text of the Constitution, you can tell from the very fact that Rand Paul didn't quote any language from the Constitution <laughs> that would support it. Right. Um, you know, you can look up the Constitution online and you can look in, in vain to see something that supports what he's saying, uh, but there's nothing in the impeachment clauses of the Constitution that would limit it that way. And secondly, the history of the Constitution uh, makes clear um, not only the case that I, I alluded to earlier, where in the 19th century um, the uh, House impeached uh, a secretary of war who had resigned to avoid impeachment, mm -hmm. and uh, it didn't work, um, and then he went through the Senate trial. But actually, even while the Constitution was being framed, uh, there mm -hmm. was a famous trial of the century um, mm -hmm. of impeachment happening in England that the framers were actually talking about while they were designing our Constitution, and that case involved somebody who'd been out of office for two years. <laughs> so the, the only uh, basis that they can have for saying uh, this argument is that it's never happened to a president before. And that's true. We, we haven't had that many presidents before, and we haven't had that many who have been impeached. Uh, but the fact that uh, it, it hasn't been done before is largely a function of the fact that m most presidents haven't tried to do something like this. And if their argument was allowed to go forth, then what it would say is that any president can do whatever they want in the last couple of weeks of their term, mm -hmm. because uh, you know by the time that they would get impeached and by the time the Senate could convene for a trial, they'd be out of office already. And because disqualification from future office is an important uh, remedy and mm -hmm. penalty for impeachment, uh, it is important to have that uh, hanging over the head of a, a president even in their last couple of weeks of office. Now, uh, and uh, the uh, five Republicans who did vote against this absurd resolution from Rand Paul uh, would be Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Pat Toomey. 
uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, this does suggest that there will not be a full 17 Republican senators willing to vote with the Democrats to impeach, at least according to all the reporting I've seen uh, since Tuesday's vote, which I should note is before the actual trial. That's not set to begin for two weeks uh, from now. And in theory, they were all sworn. All the senators swore in as, you know, promising to be impartial uh, uh, jurors here. So I'm not sure how anybody knows for sure how they'll vote after an actual trial. But just days ago, uh, Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell declared that Trump, quote, provoked the attack on the Capitol. That led some to believe that he might be in favor of uh, of convicting, which would potentially signal that other Senate Republicans could uh, vote that way as well. Yet on Tuesday, McConnell also voted in favor of Paul's ridiculous resolution that the trial was unconstitutional because Trump was no longer in office. Uh, how, how do you read that? Should we make anything of that or should we all just shut up until after the trial? I think what's going on is that they can't defend Trump on the merits. Normally in an impeachment trial, there's basically two questions for a senator to think through. One is, did he do it? Um, and there's not really any question um, as to what Trump did because it all happened in public. Um, it doesn't require a lot of you know, factual uh, investigation to find out what, what he said and did. Uh, and the second question is, uh, is this a high crime or misdemeanor? And that is a question that only the Senate can decide in the end. Uh, or is it something minor and petty? Um, so, for example, in the Bill Clinton impeachment trial, um, evidently a lot of senators felt, uh, I don't think there was any serious doubt that he had lied under oath, but they felt that it was not so severe a uh, high crime and misdemeanor um, that would merit uh, conviction in the impeachment trial. Well, here, in this case, I don't think any of the uh, senators uh, want to go on record uh, saying that uh, incitement to insurrection to take over the U.S. Capitol um, and interfere with the vote counting, uh, resulting in the sack of the Capitol and coming very close to hostage or assassination situations. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think any of them want to defend that. Uh, so what they're trying to do is weasel the way out of it by, uh, you know, using this uh, jurisdictional argument, uh, claiming that they, they can't even hold the trial. Um, but I think it's important that if they want to claim that that wasn't a serious uh, misconduct that, mm -hmm. that Trump did, uh, they should go on the record and own that, own their, their cowardice, because ultimately it is the cowardice, of, uh, I think, of uh, being afraid of their own voters to some extent. But if they're going to do that, then they shouldn't try and hide behind this silly technical argument. Now, uh, politically, some argued, Ron Fine, that uh, Trump's acquittal after his first impeachment trial showed that he was innocent of the charges and that the, uh, you know, and somehow that counterintuitively uh, sort of boosted Trump's standing. Now, you and, and John Bonifaz, Ben Clements, wrote a book calling for impeachment. Uh, surely knowing uh, that the outcome could be what it was last uh, February and now could be again here. Is there a danger that a second acquittal will also sort of counterintuitively empower him and his supporters? Is that something that uh, politically uh, perhaps should have been considered by Democrats? Well, I don't think that his... Uh is, is non-conviction by the Senate in the previous uh, impeachment trial empowered him that much because, of course, he lost the election. Mm. Um, and I think it, it did demonstrate through the process that uh, his, his misconduct was 
serious enough at least to, to require that trial. I think what's at issue here are, are two things. One is, of course, whether he should be disqualified from seeking future federal office. And the question is, if he did it once, is he likely to do it again? And mm-hmm. I, I think if he's uh, acquitted, there's going to be nothing stopping him from doing it again. Yep. But the second point of impeachment is also to draw a line in the sand for history and to say, this is not acceptable. I mean, even if Trump never wants to run for president again, uh, the United States Senate needs to say that this is not acceptable conduct from a president to try and turn uh, an army of his supporters uh, against the Congress and and try and, um, you know, overturn the election through violence. And if the Senate can't take that step, if the Senate can't draw that line in the sand, uh, then it really means that we've become a, a really fragile and, and weakened system, and I hope that's not the case. Uh, well, you note that it would it would require a second vote uh, to officially disqualify Trump from from uh, a future federal office. Uh, though that vote, as I understand it, requ- requires only a, a simple majority rather than two thirds to convict on impeachment. Can Congress simply? Vote on that, uh, skip over the uh, impeachment uh, trial itself, and simply vote on uh, barring Trump from future office? Uh, Not through the impeachment power. The uh, impeachment uh, power that they would need to first convict him by the two-thirds vote and then take that majority, simple majority vote to disqualify. Uh, I think everyone is assuming that if there are enough votes to convict by the higher standard, then there'll certainly be enough votes to take the disqualification now and, and if he doesn't uh, Ron if he doesn't pass uh, or doesn't get the two-thirds vote against him for impeachment then they cannot move on to that uh, additional vote to disqualify him from office not through impeachment there is a, a wild card uh, in that there's a, a provision of a different part of the Constitution mm-hmm. the 14th Amendment yep. uh, and this is a provision that has only been used once since the Civil War um, and it's not totally clear exactly how to apply it, but Mm -hmm. the 14th Amendment does say that if someone has engaged in rebellion or insurrection against the United States, then they are disqualified from holding future federal office. So there there could be a way for Congress to use that, and that certainly would not require a a two-thirds majority. But they would have to, as I understand it, pass a law of some sort, which would have to overcome a filibuster, I guess. It would have to get at least 60 votes somehow, pass a law that says it is illegal to do this as per the uh, 14th Amendment, Section 3. Uh, is, is that what would have to uh, ensue to, to, to enforce that? We think so, and the reason that I'm giving that very hesitant answer mm-hmm. is uh, the, the processes for impeachment are clear, and we've used them uh, a lot more, including recently, whereas this provision of the 14th Amendment was really only used for a couple of years right after the Civil War, and certainly never against a president. It was always used against uh, ex-Confederates, um, and uh, everybody knew exactly who they were talking about. Uh-huh. So there would definitely be some questions about it, but it is a power available to Congress, and I do think that if they were to pass a law and uh, perhaps need to be signed by the president, uh, then uh, it would apply, and then he would be uh, disqualified from seeking future federal office unless two-thirds of Congress removed that from him. There is another option, uh, since you mentioned the Clinton impeachment, there's another option that's uh, reportedly being pitched by Democratic Senators uh, Tim Kaine of Virginia and Susan Collins of Maine that would be a censure 
resolution for Donald Trump. And now I uh, the reason uh, the, the Clinton impeachment comes to mind is because I suspect many may have forgotten. But the the group MoveOn.org was originally formed as a coalition uh, following then Bill, uh, President Bill Clinton's transgressions in office to support the idea to, quote, censure and move on. That was how we got MoveOn.org. Now, is it wise, I guess, if everything else fails, to uh, to at least pass a motion of censure so that I guess the country can uh, can move on if all else fails here? If all else fails, and, and it's only really worth considering this if all else fails, then a censure is better than nothing. But what the, the censure does is it expresses the sense that this is uh, bad uh, and, and, and shouldn't be done. What it doesn't do is in any way prevent him from doing it again. And, and that's the real danger that we face. And it is not uncommon in the history, certainly of 20th century dictators, for someone to uh, rise to power, then be out, and then come back the second time with a vengeance. Uh, and, and that is a real risk with Trump, that uh, he may come back a, a second time. And, and his plans and his agenda and, uh, the, the will, will be entirely based on wreaking vengeance on those who offended him. And, and he will have no limits uh, if, if Congress is not able to draw yep. that line now. And there was yet another limit that was taken away, uh, another long-running attempt to, to hold the uh, former president accountable. Uh, appears to have died a very quiet death this week as the uh, Republicans' stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court quietly dismissed two lawsuits charging that Trump was in violation of the Constitution's emoluments clause that prevents a president from profiting from foreign governments, which the lawsuit claims that he did, since unlike previous presidents, he did not relinquish control of his businesses, like his hotels and, and such, while serving. Now, the court in their uh, ruling was you know offered without comment or dissent simply dismissed and wiped away the lower court opinion that actually went against Trump on this matter by finding the entire thing moot now that he is no longer in office i believe free speech for people had been a supporter of those lawsuits your response to the decision by the supremes this week to simply wipe everything away and say oh well it's too late to rule on it First thing we should say is that Congress should have impeached him for his violations of the emoluments clauses, which were apparent on the very first day that he took office mm -hmm. in 2017, because he didn't separate himself from his businesses. So he, he was uh, in violation from the minute he took the oath of office, and uh, Congress can impeach without needing to meet some of the technical standards that are applicable to lawsuits in federal court, which is what these lawsuits ended up being about. So the uh, cases went to appeal and then up to the Supreme Court on the technical question of standing, meaning do the particular plaintiffs who are bringing this lawsuit have the right to bring this particular lawsuit. So they, they didn't even really get to the point of discussing um, the, the facts of uh, the money coming into the Trump organization and, and where it was coming from, which foreign governments and, and so forth. Uh, because it got focused on standing, and the uh, Justice Department managed to stall and play out for time, um, and those lawsuits lasted basically the entirety of his his term, um, mm -hmm. and and in the end uh, they they became moot. So I think the the lesson that we have here is that the federal court system um, has tremendous potential to 
old power to account, but it comes with a lot of limits as well. And uh, there are ways that um, administrations uh, or any defendants have of, of stalling things and, and making things take longer. And in this case, uh, Trump used those very effectively, and the Supreme Court was able to entirely dodge uh, all of the, the questions that could have been um, embarrassing for those justices to have to address. Yeah, I, I mean, this is what's just incredible about it. I mean, you know, when the Mueller report came out, he said, well, I, I, uh, I can't bring charges because he's a sitting president. This is for impeachment. So then they impeached and they said, well, no, this is not an impeachable act. These are maybe criminal acts. So, you know, things were taken back to the courts. And then the courts said, well, you know, he's out of office now. It's moot. And they try to impeach him again. And they say that that's unconstitutional. I mean, when we hear the arguments that, you know, uh, no one in this country is above the law, even the president of the United States, it certainly suggests if you look at the last four years, that that is decidedly not the case. And in the emoluments, you know, case, I, I again, I'm not an attorney, but when I look at this and I think, well, how can this be moot if he got to, you know, he doesn't he gets to keep the money that he made potentially unconstitutionally. He still has that money. This is not moot. I, am I wrong to look at it that way? Uh, you're not wrong from, you know, the sort of standpoint of grand principle, from the, the standpoint of the way the courts look at it, um, they're saying, uh, you know, what would be the point of us issuing uh, an injunction telling him um, not to do this anymore? Um, and the uh, courts, especially the Supreme Court, are always happy to dodge a uh, difficult, um, problematic, or controversial, especially if it's a constitutional question, um, by relying on uh, some technical issue. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in this case, they uh, they managed to uh, they meaning the Department of Justice managed mm -hmm. to stall things long enough that the Supreme Court had had an easy out. And uh, unfortunately, it means that we never really got a, a ruling either from Congress or from the Supreme Court on whether these types of payments are acceptable. So for a future mm -hmm. president um, who might own businesses going in. They might look at what Trump did, and they might say, you know what, he got to keep running his businesses the entire four years without uh, having to give up a penny of income. I'm going to do the same thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I haven't heard uh, Joe Biden yet talk about, he's talked about a lot of good stuff, but uh, I, I sure would like to hear discussion of re reviewing the uh, Department of Justice's ridiculous Office of Legal Counsel memo saying that a, uh, a sitting president cannot be indicted for a crime. That seems absurd. And if that was changed, I think a lot of things would change. Uh, Ron Fine, it's completely unfair here because we haven't been able to talk about uh, on this show so much going on. We haven't been able to talk about much about all of these pardons that were done at the last minute by the president. We're sort of out of time here, so can't talk about it either. Uh, but the unfair part is I wanted to ask you very quickly if you know one way or another, I've heard some suggest, you know, I was shocked, frankly, that Trump did not at least attempt to pardon himself or his family or even his corrupt sidekick buddy, Rudy Giuliani. I've heard some suggest there could be a secret pardon for any or all of those folks. Is a secret pardon actually a thing? And if so, would it have constitutional validity? Well, no one has done it before, uh, and no one has tested it before, but you've got to 
suspect that Trump wrote himself a pardon and has it in a safe, and he's holding on to it in case he's charged with a crime. And uh, if he is, then he'll pull it out. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. But I have a feeling that he, he wrote a pardon and is storing it somewhere. I have no proof, obviously, but mm-hmm. I have a feeling that he's, he's willing to roll the dice with that. I have that feeling, too. Uh, Ron Fine, always great speaking to you, my friend. Uh, Ron is the legal director at freespeechforpeople.org, a top-notch group uh, that I encourage you to support. You can find him on the Twitters at Ron Fine. You can find Free Speech for People on the Twitters at FSFP and, of course, at freespeechforpeople.org. Always great speaking with you, uh, my friend Ron. I suspect we'll have many reasons to do so in the uh, not-too-distant future. It's my pleasure, and I'll look forward to joining you again. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. Okay, quick break as we bounce back to the new president trying to clean (laughs) up much of the mess of the old president. That's straight ahead. Joe Biden on Climate Day at the White House. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. To the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As we bounce back to our current president at last, who uh, signed a number of ambitious presidential actions and directives at the White House uh, on Wednesday in hopes of radically reducing the nation's use of global warming, causing uh, emissions from the burning of fossil fuels in what I think it's fair to say, Desi Doyen, is already the most ambitious such plan by a U.S. president in history. Oh, easily. It eclipses everything that the Obama administration did. And, of course, uh, it's already leading to the expected right-wing outrage, their freakout, their false claims about the program. So just so that you can hear what the new president actually said, as opposed to what Fox News is already lying about him saying, here is Joe Biden's announcement today at the White House. Today uh, is climate day at the White House, and uh, which means that today is jobs day at the White House. We're talking about American innovation, American products, American labor. And we're talking about the health of our families and cleaner water, cleaner air and uh, cleaner communities. We're talking about national security, America leading the world in a clean energy future. It's a future of enormous hope and opportunity. It's about uh, coming to the moment to deal with this maximum threat that we exist with that's now facing us, climate change, with a greater sense of urgency. In my view, we've already waited too long to deal with this climate crisis. 
We can't wait any longer. Uh, we see it with our own eyes. We feel it. We know it in our bones. And it's time to act. And I might note parenthetically, if you notice the attitude of the American people toward greater impetus on focusing on climate change and doing something about it has increased across the board, Democrat, Republican, Independent. It's uh, that's why I'm signing today an ex executive order to supercharge our administration's ambitious plan to confront the existential threat of climate change. It is an existential threat. Last year, wildfires burned more than 5,000 acres in the West, as no one knows better than the vice president, former senator from California, an area roughly the size of the entire state of New Jersey. More intense and powerful hurricanes and tropical storms pummel states across the Gulf Coast and along the East Coast. I can testify to that from Delaware. Historic floods, severe droughts have ravaged the Midwest. More Americans see and feel the devastation in big cities, small towns, coastlines, and in farmlands, in red states and in blue states. And the Defense Department reported that climate change is a direct threat to more than two-thirds of the military's operational critical installations. Two-thirds. And so this could, we, we could, this could well be on the conservative side. And many climate and health uh, calamities are colliding all at once. It's not just the pandemic that keeps people inside. It's poor air quality. Multiple studies have shown that air pollution is associated with an increased risk of death from COVID-19. And just like we need a unified national response to COVID-19, we desperately need a unified national response to the climate crisis, because there is a climate crisis. We must keep, we must lead global response, because neither challenge can be met, as Secretary Kerry has pointed out many times, by the United States alone. We know what to do. We've just got to do it. When we think of climate change, we think of it, this is a case where conscience and convenience cross paths, where dealing with this existential threat to the planet and increasing our economic growth and prosperity are one and the same. When I think of climate change, I think of, and the answers to it, I think of jobs. A key plank of our Build Back Better recovery plan is building a modern, resilient climate infrastructure and clean energy future that will create millions of good-paying union jobs, not seven, eight, ten, twelve dollars an hour, but prevailing wage and benefits. You know, we can put millions of Americans to work modernizing our water systems, transportation, our energy infrastructure to withstand the impacts of extreme climate. We've already reached a point where we're going to have to live with what it is now. That's going to require a lot of work all by itself without it getting any worse. When we think of renewable energy, we see American manufacturing, American workers racing to lead the global market. We see farmers making American agriculture first in the world to achieve net zero emissions and gaining new sources of income in the process. We see small business and master electricians designing, installing, and innovating energy-conserving technologies in building homes and buildings. And we're going to reduce electric consumption and save hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in energy costs in the process. And when the previous administration reversed the Obama-Biden vehicle standard and picked big oil companies over American workers, the Biden-Harris administration will not only bring those standards back, 
will set new ambitious ones that our workers are ready to meet. We see these workers building new buildings, installing 500,000 new electric vehicle charging stations across the country as we modernize our highway system to adapt to the changes that have already taken place. We see American consumers switching to electric vehicles through rebates and incentives, and the residents of our cities and towns breathing cleaner air and fewer kids living with asthma and dying from it. Now, not only that, the federal government owns and maintains an enormous fleet of vehicles, as you all know. With today's executive order, combined with the Buy American executive order I signed on Monday, we're going to harness the purchasing power of the federal government to buy clean, zero-emission vehicles that are made and sourced by union workers right here in America. With everything I just mentioned, this will mean one million new jobs in the American automobile industry. One million. And we'll do another thing. We'll take steps towards my goal of achieving 100 percent carbon pollution-free electric sector by 2035, transforming the American electric sector to produce power without carbon pollution will be a tremendous spur to job creation and economic competitiveness in the 21st century, not to mention the benefits to our health and to our environment. Already, 84 percent of all new electric capacity planned to come onto the electric grid this year is clean energy. Clean energy. Why? Because it's affordable. Because it's clean. Because in many cases it's cheaper. And it's where we're keeping up. They're keeping up. We're going to need scientists and national labs, land-grant universities, historical black colleges and universities to innovate the technologies needed to generate, store, and transmit clean, electric, uh, clean electricity across distances, and battery technology and a whole range of other things. We need engineers to design them and workers to manufacture them. We need iron workers and welders to install them. Technologies they invent, design, and build will ultimately become cheaper than any other kind of energy, helping us dramatically expand our economy and create more jobs with a cleaner, cleaner environment. And we'll become the world's largest exporter of those technologies, creating even more jobs. You know, we're also uh, going to build 1.5 million new energy-efficient homes and public housing units that are going to benefit communities three times over. One, by alleviating the affordable housing crisis. Two, by increasing energy efficiency. And three, by reducing the racial wealth gap linked to home ownership. We're also going to create more than a quarter million jobs to do things like plug the millions of abandoned oil and gas wells that pose an ongoing threat to the health and safety of our communities. They're abandoned wells. They're open now. And we're going to put people to work we're not going to lose jobs in these areas. We're going to create jobs. They're going to get prevailing wage to cap those over a million wells. These aren't pie-in-the-sky dreams. These are concrete, actionable solutions. And we know how to do this. The Obama-Biden administration reduced the auto industry, uh, rescued the auto industry, and helped them retool. We need solar energy, cost-competitive with traditional energy, Weatherizing more, we, we made it cost competitive, weatherizing more than a million homes. 
The Recovery Act of our last administration, the Democratic administration, made record clean energy investments, $90 billion. The president asked me to make sure how that money was spent on everything from smart grid systems to clean energy manufacturing. Now, the Biden-Harris administration is going to do it again and go beyond. The executive order I'll be signing establishes the White House Office of Domestic Climate Policy to deliver a whole-of-government approach to the climate crisis. This is not, it's not time for small measures. We need to be bold. So let me be clear. That includes helping revitalize the economies of coal, oil, and gas, and power plant communities. We have to start by creating new good-paying jobs, capping those abandoned wells, reclaiming mines, turning old brownfield sites into new hubs of economic growth, creating new good-paying jobs in those communities where those workers live, because they help build this country. We're never going to forget the men and women who dug the coal and built the nation. We're going to do right by them. Make sure they have opportunities to keep building the nation in their own communities and getting paid well for it. While the whole of government approach is necessary, though, it's not sufficient. We're going to work with mayors and governors and tribal leaders and business leaders who are stepping up and the young people organizing and leading the way. My message to those young people is you have your, the full capacity and power of the federal government. Your government is going to work with you. Now, today's executive order also directs the Secretary of the Interior to stop issuing new oil and gas leases on public lands and, offshore, and in offshore waters wherever possible. We're going to review and reset the oil and gas leasing program. Like the previous administration, we'll start to properly manage, unlike it, we're going to start to properly manage lands and waterways in ways that allow us to protect, preserve, them there's the full value that they provide for us for future generations. Let me be clear, and I know this always comes up, we're not going to ban fracking. We'll protect jobs and grow jobs, including through stronger standards like controls from methane leaks and union workers and willing to install the changes. Unlike previous administrations, I don't think the federal government should give handouts to big oil the tune of $40 billion in fossil fuel subsidies. And I'm going to be going to the Congress asking them to eliminate those subsidies. We're going to take money and invest it in clean energy jobs in America. Millions of jobs in wind, solar, and carbon capture. In fact, today's action is going to help us increase renewable energy production from offshore wind and meet our obligation to be good stewards of our public lands. It establishes a new, modern-day civilian climate corps that I called for when I was campaigning to heal our public lands and make us less vulnerable to wildfires and floods. Look, this executive order I'm signing today also makes it official that climate change will be at the center of our national security and foreign policy. And today's executive order will help strengthen that commitment by working with other nations to support the most vulnerable to the impact of climate change and to increase our collective resilience. That includes a summit of world leaders that I'll convene to address this climate crisis on Earth Day this year. In order to establish a new effort to integrate the security implications of climate change as part of our national security risk assessment and analysis will also be included. With this executive order 
environmental justice will be at the center of all we do addressing the disproportionate health and environmental and economic impacts on communities of color, so-called fence line communities, especially those communities, brown, black, Native American, poor whites. It's hard, the hard-hit areas, like Cancer Alley, in Louisiana, Cancer Alley in Louisiana, or the Route 9 Carter in the state of Delaware. That's why we're going to work to make sure that they receive 40% of the benefits of key federal investments in clean energy, clean water, and wastewater infrastructure. Lifting up these communities makes us all stronger as a nation and increases the health of everybody. Finally, as with our fight against COVID-19, we will listen to the science and protect the integrity of our federal response to the climate crisis. Today, I'm signing a presidential memorandum making it clear that we will protect our world-class scientists from political interference and ensure they can think, research, and speak freely and directly to me, the Vice President, and the American people. To summarize this executive order, it's about jobs, good-paying union jobs. It's about workers building our economy back better than before. It's a whole-of-government approach put climate change at the center of our domestic, national security, and foreign policy. It's advancing conservation, revitalizing communities in cities and in the on the farmlands, and securing environmental justice. Our plans are ambitious, but we are America. We're bold. We're unwavering in the pursuit of jobs and innovation, science, and discovery. We can do this. We must do this, and we will do this. I'm now going to sign the executive order to meet the climate crisis with American jobs and American ingenuity. And I want to thank you all. I'm going to go over and sign that now. And he did go over and sign that right <laughs> now. That was Joe Biden on Climate Day announcing his ambitious climate plan uh, that would, among other things, uh, bring us to carbon-free uh, power by 2035. And that's going to make a lot of jobs building that. Uh, Georgia Tech's climate scientist Kim Cobb said that if this is day seven momentum, <laughs> uh, this if it's representative of this administration's four-year term, there's every reason to believe that we might achieve carbon neutrality entirely sooner than 2050. So uh, lots ahead on this and uh, no time to ch chat about it today, I'm sorry to say, but we will do that on a future show, yep. no doubt. Uh, if you have any thoughts on it, I'm sure a lot of progressives out here, there, the only thing they're going to hear is not going to ban fracking. But we'll talk about that, too, in the days ahead. If you have any <laughs> yes. thoughts, you can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Maybe we will share them on the show. But we got to get out right now. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Ron Fine of freespeechforpeople.org, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us celebrate Brad Blog's 17th anniversary of troublemaking and muckraking. The troublemaking will continue tomorrow. You can find me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at The Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.